You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. And welcome again to the Monster Sci-Fi Show. I am your host, the Monster. Happy Monday! Again, made it to now week two, which I will be talking about Star Trek Strange New World Episode 2, Children of the Comet. This is a an Ahura, or I should say a Cadet Ahura-specific episode, which is good because as with the introduction of the crew, which again, not to beat Discovery down again, but I will because we know in just two episodes, so many of our main players that are going to be on this show and not just Burnham. Don't like that. Opening scene where we have these, I guess, kind of Jawa looking people crossed with blue tint skin so they look like smurfs so they're jawa smurfs or whatever they may be we have a comet that is passing by this planet and uhura gives her first mission log about what is going on she also mentions that she's going to to the captain's quarters to have dinner with the other crew members and ortegas tells her to basically dust off her dress uniform and and when she sees Ortega's and she's not dressed formally but more casual and that's when Uhura realized that she was being hazed and that was a thing that newbies get but interesting enough I didn't notice on that on the first pass of this episode but Ortega's mentioned oh that's Enterprise Bingo so that's one of the things that will happen later on in another episode that we'll talk about but Oh, okay. Very nice. <laughs> so when they arrived to the captain's quarters, the thing that I loved about it is that, you know, he greets them formally, and then he notices that Uhura is kind of like, ah, you got punked, and kind of gives a chuckle about that, and I thought that was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And it's the, he gets it, kind of like, you know, he's a cool guy. He's a cool supervisor. He's a cool captain. And he's not a hard ass. Not to knock like Picard. He did have an inner circle, but it wasn't as wide as this would be. Like Archer on Enterprise, every once in a while, he invites a member of his bridge crew to dine with him. And that was a special occasion. So this is the first time that I've actually seen this type of interaction where the captain is hosting a party. And it's kind of like a nice, cool get-together. But again, Hammer, for example, is in here. And he is preparing whatever dish that he's cutting up. But, you know, Uhura, not kind of fitting in, sees that, oh, my God, you're visually impaired. And maybe I should be able to help you. But in that conversation, we find that because he is visually impaired as an Andorian, he has other enhanced abilities that makes him as you call us more superior to everyone else who had normal senses it's that kind of playfulness because ohura is very uncomfortable it's like oh my god i didn't mean to insult you whatever but i'm like uh. 
But then Spock also kind of plays into this too. And the, the both of them kind of like, you know that they're in on the joke, but they don't really like, ha ha ha, we got her. No, it's a very subtle, I like her. I appreciate what they bring to the table. The other thing that we find, because Ohura being the new cadet, she is talking about, well, she's not sure if she's going to be Starfleet, which kind of like takes Pike back a bit because as he mentioned, and of course, Box reinforces, you know, there are thousands of people who want to be in your position and you're not sure you want to be here. I'm like, you know, you kicked, you went through a lot to get to this point, and then you're not even sure about this. So this is a good character arc set up for her development because, again, part of her rotation is that, you know, this is going to be something that's going to happen during this first away mission that's going to give her that confidence and, and give her a point where she's never encountered this and a lot is going to be put on her. So I'll talk about that as time goes on. But there's this cool conversation that Pike has with her kind of separately to find out more about Uhura. And, you know, he's said, you speak about 12 languages, right? It's like, no, 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 I speak about 37. But where she grew up in Kenya, there's about 20 different languages there. Much like in the other episode where I went off on a tangent about, you know, Bozeman and Darby for Yellowstone and Bear Creek, Bear Mountain. It's Bear Mountain, whatever. I'm old, <laughs> in which, in this case, I wanted to do some research to see if it was accurate. So there is a publication called Ethnologue, Languages of the World, and this is out since the 1950s, and basically it records the statistics as well as information about the world's languages. According to the publication, it said it's anywhere about 60 to 70 languages that Kenya has alone. I'm just thinking maybe this is an oversight, but the argument could be that maybe in the future of those 70 languages, you know, it drops down to 22. So when Ahura is in that present time, there are only 22 languages and she knows all of them. So in essence, both statements could be true, but that's kind of like uh, me jumping in between these two points. So I couldn't knock them saying, well, um, actually, <laughs> they've done only 68, but I'm not going to nitpick because I'm not an expert in this. And I just did the briefest research, but I just noticed there's a little bit of inconsistency right there. From that moment, there's something that comes back to Pike in which he's had this conversation before. He knows what he's going to say. So he's talking to Cadet Uhura. I was asking her, so what do you see yourself in 10? And he stops. He meant to say, what do you see yourself in 10 years? Like any supervisor, you know, when you're getting hired for a job, what do you see yourself in five years? That kind of thing. But what he said, he didn't realize until he was saying the words out loud, because in 10 years, he still is hung up about what is going to happen to him, right? And like a good first officer, Una really picks it up. She It's a very quick one shot, but you can see her looking 
at Pike, just kind of glancing at him and just knowing that there's something still going on in his head. Now, as Ohura gives the backstory about her parents um, and her brother dying in a shuttlecraft accident, I was thinking, is that now canon? Or am I thinking in my head, was there something in the Star Trek V novelization in which there was this backstory that was talked about in the book, but not done in the movie? Much like the idea is that everyone had uh, a secret pain in their life. And then Cybok, who will reveal and lift that burden off them. So Scotty had the loss of his nephew from Star Trek II, which the extended scenes, you saw that moment, you realized that was that connection. I don't remember, and I, I tried to, again, do a little quick research, but I don't think Uhura was even mentioned along that. So forgive me if I'm wrong, but correct me if Uhura did have a backstory and if that's contradictory to what is happening here. But... If this is what's going to be for canon, then that's what canon shall be. I proclaim it. Damn it. Moving on. The the dinner scene goes back to the issue at hand with the planet, which the, the race is called the, the Lab. And they're a pre-war, technologically-wise civilization. And basically, they want to prevent this comet because they did a simulation that it will crash into the planet and blow it all up. That was going to be the thing. It's going to be the mission for this episode. How can we make this happen? So they figured, well, let's just shoot at it to kind of deflect it. We don't need that much, but they find out it has shields. But here's the question I have, right? Because they talked about a violation of the prime director or prime directive, or in this case, the general order number one. Um, I'm going to read this like this. Um, new starship may interfere with the normal development of an alien life or society. So basically, if that's what's going to happen, you're intervening on an alien culture that should not be interfered with. That is the natural law of things. Much like when you see those stupid documentaries, like for animal or animal documentary, and they see the the hunter finding its prey, and then they're recording the whole thing, and it's morbid, and it's scary, and it's sadful, but God forbid the people photographing it documenting this interfered in the process. I mean, I know that's their job, but that should also apply to these folks, right? So it just seems weird that it, they're kind of willy-nilly about this. So I'm not sure if they're kind of like, well, it's up to the captain's discretion, as opposed to, well, that's the prime directive now, meaning you don't do that. There is no discretion. And even then, Kirk and others have found ways to kind of like kind of scurry around that. But what are whatever. I'm not gonna get into the heart of those details, but man, it, it just seems weird like 
this is the second episode, and I'm, I'm already violating a general order. And it's like the first one. So, like, come on, man. In any case, so Uhura is going to be selected for this away mission. You have Samuel Kirk, who is Kirk's brother, who's also, I think he's an exobiologist or exo specialist, whatever. Spock and Laon joining that crew. Cool. What I love about hearing this transport effect is that sound that is more towards the first episode of Star Trek The Cage. And when you hear the transport effect, it is identical. And I love the fact that they kept that. It is so nerdy of me to appreciate a little sound effect like that, but I'm so happy that they did that. Also, mad props to the costume for their their away mission. It is really damn cool. So unlike the silver boxy kind of looking jumpsuit that that Kirk wore, it's kind of reminiscent of that, but it's a little bit more stylized, a little more tailored, and it's like not 60s themed. So I appreciate that very much. So when we get to the comet or inside the comet itself, you have this interior that has like this weird orb center thing. And as they're walking in, I'm like, oh my God, it it feels very reminiscent of in the alien movie, the space jockey scene, because it has such a wide scope and, you know, anything that has something kind of like a weird egg shape you know nothing good is going to be happening from this. Because that's what always happens in any science fiction. Don't touch that thing that you're not supposed to do, right? But in any case, but what does Kirk do? He touches the damn thing like a dumbass. (laughs) But unlike being a red shirt, he's not. I don't think he has a red shirt. I think his, his uniform is blue for science. But because we know his name, and he doesn't have a red shirt, you know he's not going to die. And lastly, he's not going to die yet. <laughs> Later on, in another Star Trek version, or another Star Trek episode, not necessarily in Strange New Worlds, that will happen. So, spoilers ahead, if you don't know your history of the original series, but he gets that. <laughs> And it seems kind of fitting, too, because I'm like, you know, he's touching things, and the thing that touched him was another alien thing that killed him. So, the circle of life, I guess. So, now the the burden lies on now Ohura to figure out how to communicate with this or how to do anything, because right now, the shield now is around the, the comet, so they can't be transported out to help rescue Sam Kirk. Luckily, there's a breathable atmosphere, which doesn't get fully explained as to how that happened, but whatever, it's a minor point. So, Ohura, to kind of deal with the stress that having to figure out what the code is and such, she starts to hum. And that's when Spock noticed that the singing or the humming that she's doing has an effect because the lights in the space is lighting up in different ways what is amazing with the cinematography there's a a term called boken in which the lights from a distance gets blurred out 
So it has like this kind of mosaic pattern behind them. And I love that effect. That is just a beautiful shot. And with all these lights, each person that is just filmed in this Balkan uh, scenario, absolutely gorgeous. I applaud them for their cinematography. It is something to behold to see that kind of deep focus done for these characters to really make them look so much better on a small screen because that's the kind of effect that you would put for like the movies. You know, those kind of little treatments pay off dividends on a small screen and I love it. It is absolutely gorgeous. Now back on the Enterprise, they encountered a ship that attacks them um, and they're known as the Shepherds. So they're the protectors of the Mahanet. As Pike kept saying, this is the comment. The Mahanet is the ancient arbiter of life. So it's kind of like a seedling of putting things in, in, into planets or kind of like a Johnny Appleseed or in the terms of Prometheus, the engineers, how they embed their DNA uh, by drinking that black uh, goo that we see in the very beginning of that movie. And then they get dissolved, but then the DNA becomes part of everything on that planet. Uh, we don't get to see that in this movie here or this episode, which is like, you don't need to go that far. But basically, it, it, it puts in something on a planet that needs something. But whatever that is... It is looked upon as a godlike creature, and the shepherds are there to make sure that nothing else interferes in that process. So there is a really cool classic Star Trek storyline where you have people who are looking at the exact same situation that may seem alien to us, but through their eyes, that's how things work, meaning culture. Miracles sometimes are divine interventions. Other times it could be through actions that people do and using science to make things happen. But there's a disconnect between these two. So you can't discredit people for having their beliefs because you don't want to discriminate. So as this episode continues, we find out from that Ahura was able to decipher or at least come to some kind of understanding about musical theory and how notes would apply in terms of mathematical equations, which is starting to help her unlock a certain code to what the alien language is all about. So from there, I'm lost already. <laughs> so... As much as people who never understood Star Trek with the techno babble, and they're like, huh? I felt so dumb listening to what they were saying because I'm like, I don't understand anything about those musical theories and how notes work and, and octaves and all that jazz. Even though I love music, I have no deep understanding of any of that. I just know it sounds pretty. I like the sound of that. And I like to hum it. That's about it. Anything more than that, I'm just not that uh, savvy about musical appreciation. 
she uh, was able to give a signal out to Enterprise. Enterprise is able to pick it up. And I was thinking in my head that Pike was going to tell the computer, Shazam! And to help figure out what that song was, because, you know, why not? But I'm sure they got better technology in the future. You don't need Shazam, so you don't need the app. So why I'm still talking about that super joke. It's not a good one, so I will leave. let it go. The note, the music that he hears or the music that comes through, he recognizes or the computer recognizes that it's a song from Kenya. So they know that the crew is still alive. And then the other thing before that happened was that as she was deciphering and understanding the language, this globe kind of like started peeling in like sections. And the thing was in my head, I was like, oh, it looks like one of those... uh chocolate oranges that you have it wrapped and you slam it on a table and hold it up the foil and there's your chocolate orange it looked just like that except that it was a weird alien giant chocolate orange thing all right look i didn't say that this is all going to be good for a podcast i'm just saying this is how my mind works and i'm just taking you on that ride (laughs) so she gives the signal to through this this device to help lower the shield enterprise picks it up boom off they go back to the enterprise so everyone's good to go so now the shepherds find out yeah your people are down there you know you're desecrating mahanet and you're you're cruising for a bruising basically so they take on uh, take on firepower and you know they're suffering shield damage like always 50 percent 40%, 30%, 30%. It happens everywhere, but Enterprise is taking a lot of casualties uh, with their shields. He tells Ortegas, you know, I hear, you know, you're the, you're the best pilot since the Academy. I want you to see what you can do and make things happen. Already in my head, I'm like, you know, we see this nice scenario where the Enterprise is flying towards the comet and avoiding all the debris that's falling off it. And it's beautiful because it's like almost 20 seconds of uninterrupted animation. CGI at its best. And I'm like, it it is gorgeous. But I have to plot to Ortegas, who has a few tricks up her sleeve. Unlike Han Solo in (laughs) Star Wars A New Hope, where in the Family Guy joke, it's like, don't worry, I got a few tricks up my sleeve. And then he moves lazily to the left. (laughs) And then the Imperial officer is like, what is he doing? No, 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 no. That guy's got some moves. (laughs) I love that. Because it's just like, that's all you got? But Artegas, she delivers. So major love for Artegas. So the plan was they're going to appear, which is not that far from reality, flying in space disabled right near the comet so enterprise is basically helpless because either the comet will run into the enterprise ship explosion will happen from the enterprise and destroy the comet or if the shepherds decide hey we're just going to shoot the enterprise no because the explosion from the enterprise will also destroy the comet so they were asking them for help So they were forcing the Shepherds to do something. So while that was going on, Spock had a plan 
in which he hid out in a shuttlecraft in the debris of the comets. And again, another gorgeous shot of the shuttle navigating through the debris. Another like 15 seconds of that stellar, absolutely stellar, gorgeous plan here, which I understood what they were trying to do. But the idea was this term called sublimation. Here's our science word for the day, because this is something that I had to look up and to understand what was going on. As Spock's shield was being heated up, he was going through the comet and basically through sublimation was converting the ice into a gas or something to that effect in which it sheared off part of the comet. With that, it was able to deflect or reroute the comet's trajectory. Sublimation, basically, when you think of an ice cube, that if you had a hair dryer and you heat it up, it goes from solid to liquid. Sublimation is changing that ice that is a solid into a gas that has no liquid. So that is the difference. That is what sublimation is. So I hope that makes sense. And knowing is half the battle. All right. Enough of the science crap. Basically, the plan worked. They didn't touch it technically, even though they were on the planet, or they were technically on the comet, but the plan did work. And since the shepherds believe, like, see, if it was meant to be that it was going to destroy this planet, it was meant to be, but the Mahanet did not. It changed its course. Thank the maker, whatever you want to do, it was its will, and it was all good. Off they go. Then we come back to Uhura finding out there was more information about what's going on. According to her information that she was able to gather, that somehow this comment knew that this was going to happen, meaning that a piece of this comment was going to be sheared off and it was going to divert its path. But it's ironic that exact same piece that Spock was able to carve out was the exact same one that was able to predict. So it isn't in a weird kind of metaphysical way, you know, did was it self-aware, was it self-conscious? Whatever the will may be, it was kind of like unexplained, and I'll just leave it at that. It didn't deal with many chlorians. It was just like, well, we just don't know, but just leave it at that. It's a miracle. So that's where I'm like, all right, I'm fine with that. And Ohura is, you know, for the most part, not like I suck because she didn't. She was able to do the thing that she is capable of, which is her ability to understand linguistics to the point where you have. So her talent to understand alien languages, that was what she wanted to do. So she became part of that success for the crew to not only get off the damn comet, but also help fulfill the comet's purpose. So I thought that was kind of cool. You know, I, I appreciate that this is Ahura's first away mission, and she faced kind of an uncertain 
uh, outcome because your chief guy, Samuel Kirk, you know, he took it one on a noggin and is like, we're relying on you to get us out of here. Despite the fact Spock is really super smart and La'an is really good about security, neither of which were able to have solved this problem or that predicament. At the end of the episode, we get a really cool moment between Pike and Una as they're sitting having a drink. And it, it ties into what had happened with the comet. And it's that, you know, she says that just because you have this information about the future does not make it a thing that is going to happen. You know, many things could happen in, in, in the process. But he gives the line is that about fate is what you make of it, which ties into something that Terminator 2 expressed. You know, there is no fate but what we make for ourselves. And yeah, I, I kind of like, it, it's an interesting argument to have, you know, something that's predestined that no matter what you do, that is the thing that is going to be your outcome ultimately versus me deciding I don't want to do that, but isn't doing that thing that you don't want to do causes that outcome to do. So you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, and you're damned if you have to remake the Terminator and screw up the whole series by killing John Connor. Why would you do that? Why would you undo the very thing about his importance in a Terminator series? God damn you. Damn you all to hell for screwing that movie up. Oh, my God. But aside from that, what a great episode this was. I really liked this. We got to see a lot of the crew just being casual. We saw Ahura being Ahura and smart Ahura. Unlike, was it Star Trek Six? where Uhura had to refer to a Klingon dictionary because, <laughs> to pretend she's Klingon. And I'm like, man, come on. That's just lazy. But in any case, I'm very happy for now two episodes down for Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And um, again, I'm, I'm, I jumped to cover a couple of points, but I just didn't want to go point by point about everything. But I guess... I covered enough to say how much I really love what I'm seeing on the screen. From the cast, the storyline, the special effects, it is beautiful. It is the thing that it should have been what Star Trek is all about. Like when we have the original series from the 60s, ahead of its time with the storytelling, but then you see the updated version of the next generation with new technology. I'm like, yes, give me more of that. All right. So that's two episodes down and I got eight more to go. Plus all the other stuff I got to do as well. But in any case, I hope you enjoy this episode review of Star Trek Strange New World, episode two, Children of the Comet. I'll be dropping more episodes on Monday on a weekly basis, as well as Kenobi on Wednesdays and my sci-fi news on Friday. So please let me know what your thoughts are. Give me reviews wherever you see my podcast. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. 
But in any case, if you reach this point, thank you very much for listening to me, the monster, on the Monster Sci-Fi Show. It's sci-fi from a certain point of view. Good night. The Soul Forge podcast is all about life, the universe, and everything. Is it good for kids? Oh no, it's not good for kids. Is it geeky? Oh, it can be geeky, but it can also be serious. We talk about life, sex, dating, and mental health, and so much more. Where can you find a Soul Forge podcast? You can find it everywhere: iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon Music, and the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.